You know, making our elected officials celebrities, who does it serve? It doesn't serve us. Right. It hasn't. Making AOC, Nancy Pelosi, Pete Buttigieg, Donald Trump, all these people celebrities hasn't given us Medicare for all during a global mm. pandemic. Mm. I think that's all we need to know. Mm. It doesn't serve the people. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Immigrantly. I am your host, Sadia Khan, and I am so excited that you are spending this time with me. As always, when we are curating our list of guests, we think long and hard about the stories you want to be hearing and how we can make this platform as impactful and relevant to the times as can be. Immigrantly is all about breaking silos and talking about important matters in context. Hence, I decided to invite a friend back to speak to her developments and hear what she has to say about the recent events surrounding Asian American communities, about expectations for the new administration, and to basically unpack some other issues that I've been grappling with. You've heard her name here and elsewhere. Saira Rao, the co-founder of Race to Dinner and all things activism when it comes to politics and speaking up against racism. Saying that Saira is fearless and bold would be an understatement. I've never met a woman so outspoken and willing to challenge people on the matter of race. She has a book coming out called White Women, Everything You Already Know About Your Own Racism and How to Do Better. So check that out when it drops. I won't bore you any longer with my talk since she's the one we want to highlight here. So let's jump right in. I am thrilled to have you on again, Saira. I know it's been a minute and as much as the world has gone through this ringer and shifted these past few months, I'm sure you've experienced a lot of changes as well. I believe it was early March when you and I spoke, right? Mm-hmm. And at the time we had Regina on as well. And I remember being so impressed with your radical honesty, how both of you were unafraid to call out racism and also admit to the nuances it plays at the personal level. So today what I want to do is I want you to build on the conversation further and maybe we go in uncharted directions. Sure. (laughs) Um, And I am going to put you on the spot now and play a snippet from your last episode. Take a listen. When I ran for Congress, the um, APAC, the Asian American, you know, PAC uh, in D.C. has a big gala every spring. Mm. And they invited all the Asian Americans running for office. And there were like eight of us running for Congress at the time, except for me. They didn't invite me. Mm. (laughs) Do you know who invited me? And I went and they all died. Andrew Yang invited me to go as his date. So I went (laughs) with Andrew and they all were like, holy fuck, she came. Like, and I was told by more than one person there that they feel like my platform is too radical and alienating. And do you know why? It's because I had Black Lives Matter on my website. And Mm -hmm. I was told specifically to take that down 
because it's too alienating to a lot of um, Asian people. So basically, to summarize, you shared how you've been told more than once that your platform was too radical and alienating. And this resistance was attributed to people you knew well, right? Mostly from Asian community. Do you think that opinion has changed given the recent social climate, like considering what has ensued the past few months, both within and at Asian American communities? Well... You know, I think it's a little complicated. Hmm. And I'll give you an example. So a couple weeks ago, a friend of mine, an Asian woman, was talking about, you know, all the anti-Asian violence Hmm. on the one hand. And literally, you know, maybe 10 minutes later, made a pretty blatant anti-Black statement. And I said, you know, do you see what just happened? And she got really defensive and, you know, started backtracking and wanted to change the subject. And I just said, you know, there's no reason to be defensive. Like, this is part of it, Mm. right? Like, Mm. this is, the ecosystem is such that it doesn't change overnight. It doesn't change in a minute just because uh, we're we're hitting a a flare of violence. And and let's be clear, anti-Asian violence is as old as this country. This is not new. None of this is new. And I think that's a bit of the problem here is the way we're framing this and, and not you and I and like the media is framing this is that this is somehow new. And what I'm liking to see right now is that there is actually quite a bit of talk about that. Like, let's stop being ahistorical here and and acting as if this is somehow new and suddenly they're, you know, Asians speaking out I, again. Look at the history of this country. You know, the Chinese Exclusion Act, look at Japanese internment, look at post 9-11. This is this is old stuff. And so I do think it's great that more and more Asian folks are speaking up and speaking out. Do I think that the anti-blackness in the Asian community has gone away magically? Absolutely not. Hmm. What I do think and, and, you know, I did speak yesterday with um, this wonderful black woman out in Arizona. I'm going to go on her show in a couple of weeks. And um, she's a professor And she just did a TV segment with um, an Asian colleague of hers. And, you know, they had they had a very radically honest conversation. Let's be clear. The black Asian tension has is forever old by by design. White supremacy created that. So we can acknowledge that. Right. We can acknowledge that um, and also say, you know what, we're not going to fall prey to that. We're going to keep our eyes on the true villain, which is whiteness and white supremacy. We're not going to do it. So, you know, we're seeing this a lot more right now. In my lifetime, at least, I haven't Mm. seen this many black folks and Asian folks saying we're not doing that. We're not going to do it. We're not going to do it. And so that gives me some hope, actually. Why do you think that's happening, though? Because, you know, people of color, for the most part, know the history. Like, Mm. we've seen this so many times before we can acknowledge the existing tensions and be truthful about why that is. Mm. You know, this is completely created by white supremacy to keep us apart. Divide and conquer is not a, you know, sideshow to white supremacy. <laughs> it's the central feature. It's the it's the central feature. So, let's keep, you know, Asian people Latino people, black people, indigenous people, other people of color fighting with each other. And we'll be over here sipping martinis and playing tennis. (laughs) And and that's what happens, you know, and more and more of us are saying, no, that's not we're not going to do that, you know, and multiple truths can be true. Sure, there's there's tension within the Asian community 
you know, and between the black community and the Asian community and white people did that. Those two things can can be true at once. Sarah, when you talk about Asian community, I'm assuming you're referring to East Asians and South Asians, all of them, right? Or are you specifically referring to East Asian communities? Well, no, I'm, I'm so that's another great question. You know, the other thing that we've seen is we've been painted as one big monolith, Asian Americans. Yeah. Like, that's ridiculous, right? Yes. Um, and so there's then no nuance. So I can tell you this. I was at the World Trade Center on 9-11, and I, you know, was in law school in at NYU at that time. And what was remarkable to me, the amount of things that happened mm-hmm. out of that. So, number one, suddenly, you know, people who look like you and me became targets overnight. Mm-hmm. I had you know, Hindu friends and family distance themselves from Muslim South Asians. We, you know, we're not them, you know, that that happened, right? Right. Also, I had East Asian friends saying, we're not that kind of Asian. There, there, was, there was also the East Asian <laughs> saying, we're not, we're not that kind of huh. Asian. Huh. Everybody's running away from white violence, right? Um, everyone's trying to save themselves. So what's what, what has happened since then? You know, I, I, I will tell you this, you know, in Colorado even, over the course of the past half, before the quote China virus stuff, hmm. um, absolutely an effort on on certain Asian communities to distance themselves from other Asian communities. We're all trying to survive, right? That's and, true. and try to get as proximate to whiteness and quote safety as possible, which is which is a myth as well. And now what's happened is you're now seeing South Asians saying we're not those kinds of Asians <laughs> who are getting targeted huh. due to the COVID violence. So. It's just posturing. It's all the same stuff. This has been going on forever and ever and ever, you know? And so um, I think at some point, and I'm hoping it's now, that we can actually say there's always a non-white group that's blamed in this country. Always. Always. Look at the, look at the, you know, the crisis at the border. Like, Latino people have been scapegoated forever and ever and ever. Black people have been scapegoated forever and ever and ever. And now, you know, like we're, we're seeing this, this scapegoating of East Asians. Hmm. But, you know, 10 years ago was South Asians. I mean, it's, it's always somebody except for white people. That's and I, I just think at some point we have to start talking about the culprit. And the culprit is whiteness and white supremacy and saying, we see you, we see your tactics, and we're not going to, we're not going to be divided. We're not going to let you divide and conquer. And I am at least seeing more and more of those conversations happening um, with black and Asian folks, which is, which is, gives me hope, like I said. So do you notice any stark differences between the BLM and Stop AAPI hate movement? What power and organization do you think can be learned from the former and maybe translated into this period? I'm glad this kind of has gone away. But, you know, a couple of weeks ago, this Asian Lives Matter hashtag was trending. Hmm. And I tweeted, you know, we need to not do that because that's co-opting. And very basic critical race theory, once Black Lives Matter, all lives matter, right? So immediately, you know, the white supremacist Nazis came into my mentions, hundreds and hundreds, um, calling me a racist and blah, blah, blah. And so I no longer let those tweets sit out there because it makes my life very dangerous when that happens because then it moves to Reddit and then it moves to all these other, Mm. you know, Gab and Parler. And then so I deleted it. So what happens next? 
my literary agent and my film TV agent gets get emails mm. um, from an East Asian man. Um, he's a coder. He used his real name. He used, you know, he used his company and he emailed them to say that my tweet for he said my skin color and my eye shape is different. For, so look at how we all succumb to this. My, my skin color and my eye shape is different oh, wow. from the Asians being targeted right now. So I don't count as an Asian for the purposes of being able to speak from the perspective of an Asian. And as such, my tweet was hate speech against Asians. Sit with that. You know, um, so what do I think? I think that, you know, black people gave us the Immigration Rights Act of 1965. It's mm. because of black people that my family is here and that I'm here. And we have a lot to learn. And I think we need to learn with humility and with with patience without being fragile. And if we continue and by we, I mean, Asians, if we continue mm to understand that whiteness and white supremacy is the oppressor across the board. I think that we can actually organize beautifully together. Hmm. You know, again, it, it becomes, it, 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 we can organize and we can, we can fight against Asian hate without being anti-black, but we can also organize against whiteness and white supremacy hmm. because whiteness and white supremacy, look at the New York times on any given day. It's, yeah. You know, it's, it's it's the George Floyd trial. It's Asian women getting shot up by white guys. It's, uh, you know, Central American children in cages at the border. What is the unifying principle here? What is in common here? It's whiteness. It's white supremacy. And we got to keep focused on that. And I think that like when, you know, Black Lives Matter, stop Asian hate, you know, it's it's all the same thing that the people who are the villains here are it's white supremacy. Hmm. And, and I think if we can just stay focused on that, we can get far. That's so true. It is symptomatic of a larger systemic problem, right? Um, that I believe also deals with our psyche as Asians, as South Asians. Have you ever asked yourself why we ascribe white or whiteness to purity? I've been asking these questions. Like I keep on thinking about how just the color itself. Of course. Yeah. White lies. Yes. It's like white lies. Yeah, it's language. black and white. Yeah. How do we think about angels? How course, do we think yeah. about anything evil that's black? So tell me what is your view of your race and what was it like as a child and how did your parents Talk about skin color, because to me, that is reincarnation of sorts of white supremacy when we engage in colorism of any sort. Well, you know, in a white supremacy culture of which we are absolutely it's it's again, it's not a sideshow. It's the foundation. It's not the elephant in the room. It's the room. Hmm. And in a white supremacy culture, white is at the top. And then, so you need something at the bottom, hmm. right? To make this ecosystem of hate work, you need something at the bottom. Black is at the bottom uh, and everything is in between. You know, Isabel Wilkerson does a great job of explaining this in the book, Cast. I don't know if you've had a chance to read it. I haven't, but I've heard so many good things about it. Yeah, I mean, she, you know, she refers to the rest of us Asians, Latino folks um, as the middle caste. Hmm. And so in order to keep blackness down and whiteness up, you need us. You know, like you need us. And so you're always, if you're in the middle, you want to be close to the power center and white is the power center, right? And so um, 
what was it like growing up? A hundred, I mean, my parents were all programmed, you know? And so when they came, I I mean, some of the earliest memories were of, I was never allowed to go outside um, in the sun because I'd get dark. So that's colorism. That's anti-blackness, right? Colorism is anti-blackness. Um, and so, you know, in fact, when I was in India a couple of years ago, an uncle of mine who I hadn't seen in decades said to me, you know, when we, when I came to Richmond to see you when you were little, you and your sister, we really thought you were going to be tall and fair, but you turned out, both turned out to be short and dark. It was not a compliment. (laughs) And so, uh, it was that, you know, my sister and I had to stay indoors all summer while our Mm. white friends would go out to the pool and then, and and here's the rub. They all are putting oil all over their body to tan. And then they would put their arms next to mine and say, am I as dark as you now? I mean, it's so disgusting, right? So white people tanning is beautiful. Um, but brown people getting darker is not. Hmm. And so everything was about assimilation. Of course, they never used the words and they still don't. It's funny, like Indian immigrants in my community don't use the word white. In fact, anytime I talk about white people, they they freak out. It's like, it's the sin. They talk about Americans, right? So right. American this and that. We know what that means, right? Yeah, uh, it's America Americans are white people. White, yes. And so, and then they would say the Chinese, they'd say the blacks, they'd say the Mexicans, they'd say us, you know, us, hmm. meaning we're not American. And so it was also deeply self-loathing too. And so the assimilation is assimilating to being American and American is code synonymous with being white. It was made clear to us from birth that we were to assimilate hmm. to whiteness. So um, that's what we did. That's what we did. And, you know, you knew that. Look at the media. Look at TV. Yeah. Look at magazines. Even now, white is beautiful. Thin, white, hmm. blonde is beautiful. Um, Western notions of beauty. Uh, you know, our children are all aspiring to look like, you know, Jennifer Aniston. And so um, that, you know, I think that I probably started hating myself and my skin color from the time I was like two years old. Hmm. And I remember as a kid praying to wake up white. I, again, I would never, and even in my dreams, use the word white, hmm. um, praying to wake up American. And it never happened. I mean, there was a, there was one incident when I was like nine, 10 years old, took a rock and tried to rub uh, the brown off my skin. Hmm. And my mother even told me on her deathbed, what, eight years ago, that that was one of the, still stuck with her as one of the worst memories of her life was that I do appreciate that these conversations are becoming more common Mm. and more open Mm. but I also think that we're in a bubble I really do I think that social media puts you in a bubble and you think that these conversations are really you know kind of happening all over the place Mm. and um you kind of get out into into the world and into, into these various communities and you realize that maybe these conversations really aren't as mainstreamed as we would like them to be, or we even think that they are. I've been thinking a lot about colorism in South Asian community, and I grew up in Pakistan. I remember growing up, as you said, hearing from my parents and grandparents telling me not to go outside too often, you know, to preserve my lighter brown skin, if that even Uh makes sense. Uh And I know these views are reinforced in media like Bollywood films. We see that. We grew up watching that. 
And to me, it's like by focusing on our skin tone, we are distracting from people who have darker skin and are fighting the same fight as we are. But how do we decolonize ourselves from this mindset, Saira, and be in support of the larger movement that has, in a way, started? I mean, it's exactly what you just said. So again, when I was in India a couple of years ago, I was in uh, my dad's hometown of Coimbatore. We went to the mall. Coimbatore is filled with dark-skinned South Asians. I don't think I saw a single white person there. <laughs> and walk into the toy store, and I'm thinking to myself, great, I can actually walk in here and get my kid a doll hmm. that looks like her. I about dropped on the floor the entire wall, a huge wall. Every doll in that store was white. Every doll. Hmm. And we're in a dark-skinned South Asian town that in a nutshell is, you know, how colonized we are. Billboards all over the town of, you know, new developments being erected were with super light-skinned mm. South Asians. And and I was asking my cousin about it and he said, oh yeah, they, they overexpose mm. the pictures. So everybody looks super light. So, you know, the British left India in modern, and left is a kind word, left India in modern times. And look at what happened there to talk about divide and conquer. Mm. You know, India is a great story around that. It all starts with us, right? Mm. I mean, everything starts with us. And it wasn't only, it was only like four years ago where I woke up and actually truly realized that I was not white, but I was American. Huh. And it has been a four-year, incredibly intense process for me. I think I'm coming out on the other side. It's a it's a lifelong journey, though. I'm not decolonized by any stretch of the mm. imagination, but I'm I'm pretty deep into the process, and I can recognize things and I can see things now that I can tell you my family can't, you know, mm. and a lot of my South Asian friends and community members can't because how can you undo, you know, overnight? decades and centuries of programming and violence that's been committed against your, you know, your community. And I have a family member earlier this year, we're talking about this and they're mm. immigrants and they're in their seventies. And I yeah. said, aren't you tired? Aren't you tired of being treated like lesser? Aren't you tired of it? Mm. And they literally just shrugged their shoulders and said to me, just is what it is. And I said, do you recognize that you've been treated as lesser. Yeah. And they grew up in, in India that was that was colonized, right? Mm. They that's where they grew up. So they they literally saw white people as above them there and here too. And and they said, Of course, of course we see that. And I said, You're okay with it? And they just said, Well, like, it's just the way it is. And and it's this resignation and acceptance mm. that they are lesser, but also will be the first people to say something anti black. Exactly. You know, it's like it's because if you accept that you're lesser, you've accepted the hierarchy that has been given to you. Huh. And that means that black people are below you and white people are above you and you're better than and, and lesser than. So the self-loathing until and unless we decolonize ourselves, we will continue to wreak havoc on the black community. Hmm. We will continue to wreak havoc on our own communities because if you are self-loathing and colonized, you don't think you yourself and your own communities are worthy. Mm. You know, whiteness has stripped white people of their own humanity. Look at COVID. I mean, like, 
I think if we don't see this now, clearly, we never will. I mean, we are okay with, you know, people going into grocery stores, malls, movie theaters, mm. uh, homes, apartments, schools, 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 elementary schools, middle schools, colleges, high schools, mm. and killing, mass murdering Americans a large percentage of which are white Americans. So if white people are fine with their own people getting massacred, you think they give a fuck about us? I'm assuming you've had so many conversations with white people. What are some of the things that you think need to be dismantled? Or where do you find the most resistance? Well, going back to what your prior question is, it's truly in a nutshell this. White people, good white people, quote, and I put good in quotes, hmm. good white people do not see themselves as the problem. I'll give you another example. Uh, after the Atlanta massacre, my kid is the only Asian kid in their, uh, in their class. Hmm. And the head of the school, a white guy, you know, literally sends out emails and videos every 10 seconds about anything that's happening in the world. And it was crickets on this massacre. They get in my car and I ask, you know, what was said about it? Nothing. Hmm. So I send an email saying, just curious why you didn't say anything. Long story short, it was conscious. He said that he needs to sit with his reticence about why he doesn't want to say anything about it. Hmm. And I said, you know, as the only Asian family in this class, it feels like erasure. He just said, I'm sorry you feel that way. Hmm. Right. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I said, let's be clear. If the shooter, you know, wasn't white and if the victims were you'd be talking about it you know tomorrow and then lo and behold two days later the boulder shooting happened and within minutes that's what you know he sent out an email so i wrote a very very clear and stark email back and i said you know it's his own racism that's driving his quote reticence Hmm. he didn't even email me back he didn't even find my email worthy of a response and so um he also made a statement about how it's scary about the whole and quote whole anti-Asian violence happening in San Francisco. And I'm like, San Francisco, <laughs> <laughs> that's random. Like it's everywhere. Right. So white people are kick the can. It's always it's it's the Republicans fault. It's San Francisco's fault. It's the South's fault. It's always somebody that's not them. And so since you and I last spoke, Hmm. um, we've launched a new program at Race to Dinner called Race to Community. And it's an explicitly anti-whiteness program, eight-week anti-whiteness program. And it's led by the white woman on our team, Lisa Bond. So our Race to Dinners, Regina and I do the dinners. And then after the dinner, Lisa circles back with the white women and has a Zoom with them. So it's like black and brown women are doing the upfront work and then she does the uh, the work on the back end. We flipped, we flipped it. So with this, she does eight weeks of work with them. And at the end, Regina and I do a Zoom. Walk me through that eight week period. It's changed everything. Hmm. It's actually getting white people, white women, to focus on themselves and their own whiteness and to stop talking about and thinking about how worrying about BIPOC people and Hmm. worrying about themselves and worrying about their own white identity. What is white identity? Hmm. They don't even have a racialized identity, right? Hmm. Because white people are just people. White people are just Americans. White women are just women. We've all, the rest of us have all been racialized. And, and so, 
um, it's actually getting them to understand. So one very basic thing is like, you know, at the beginning and it's really illuminating. So say someone asked me, write the first four things about your identity, right? Mm. The first thing would be Indian or South Asian or Brown or whatever. Second one would probably be woman, you know? Um, she has them do that exercise like literally 99% of the time, guess where white falls in the, for them in the in that list? Bottom? It doesn't. Oh. It doesn't appear. It doesn't even appear. Wow. Because it's the default. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's where we are. You know, like that, it's, it's so foundational. And so it's about them recognizing that being white is part of their identity and then going through characteristics of whiteness that they themselves don't recognize as part of their white identity. What does that look like? Being nice, being polite, hmm. being really, really busy all the time with nonsense. You know, you hear white women talking about being crazy busy every 10 <laughs> seconds, right? Um, like, like false urgency. Like I need this, I needed this yesterday. And then you get it to them and then nothing happens. Um, being overscheduled, you know, never having enough time. It's capitalism, right? right. It's, it's more, 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 busier, busier, busier. Getting them to understand what whiteness looks like, what the characteristics are of white culture, mm. uh, you know, not telling the truth ever. And when we talk about that, that means in their own personal lives too. How many white women are on Instagram from morning until night putting pictures up of their beautiful family, <laughs> their perfect husbands, and then two weeks later, they're announcing that they're getting a divorce. Yeah. It, there's so much shame huh. around being human. And being human is having conflict. And being human is having, you know, rough patches in your marriages yeah. or your sexuality, like being embarrassed about your sexual, whatever it is, right? Mm. And so it's starting to unpack how... You know, whiteness, it, it, in a couple of these cases, these women have said, you know, I finally understand how my whiteness has caused me to be anorexic hmm. at different points in my hmm. life. It's the perfectionism, hmm. you know, it's the perfectionism, um, wanting to have plastic surgery, all these things, all these things. And so it's it's the process of, of understanding that A, you have a white identity and that white guilt and huh. white pride are flip sides of the same white supremacy coin. So if you're stuck in white guilt, you're then re you're centering your feelings over like frankly the violence that you're committing. So the goal is to actually get white folks to acknowledge and be able to point out their white identity and have a positive experience around it that's not that's not prideful and that's not guilty. And then I think we can start getting somewhere because until and unless white folks see themselves in mm. this violence that we see on the front page of the New York Times, they all are pointing their fingers at somebody else. I can't say that um, I'm not Nikki Haley and Nikki Haley is not me. We are the same, mm. you know, mm. like I get where she came from. Mm. I 100 percent get where she came from. So I just, I, I have a hard time also when South Asians do the same thing, you know, fuck Nikki Haley and, and you know, Dinesh D'Souza. And I'm like, no, they're a part of our community. Like, hmm. we can't disown them any more than they can disown us. And so I think we have to start taking 
personal responsibility and we have to start understanding how our own conditioning shows up Mm. in good and bad ways. And white people have a very hard time doing that. Today's podcast is presented by Podco. Podco is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast. And I'm so excited that I discovered it as an indie podcaster. It allows me to monetize my podcast with a flat rate. And so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podco. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's Pod go.co at p-o-d-g-o dot c-o and be sure to add our podcast immigrantly in the how did you hear about podco section of the application so lastly tell me about this book you've signed um called white women everything you already know about your own racism and how to do better I mean, the title itself is so striking. What do you discuss in it and what is the release date? Um, We're actually almost done. Regina and I are almost done with the first draft, which is really exciting. Um, Estimated launch date is 4th of July of 2022. Penguin Random House is the publisher. And what do we talk about? We talk about this stuff. It's so funny and not funny, haha, but funny, sad. White women, and by the way, white men... Are, are, like it's so funny to me how white men try to be in solidarity with me against their hatred for white women and I'm like you got this wrong like we, <laughs> as Regina says we don't fuck with white men because they're beyond yeah. you know redemption yeah. I have to hope that that's not true but she's I mean there's no reason not to not to think that we have all the historical evidence that she's right white women aren't at 101 around whiteness they're at like point 101 yeah. so it is the most basic stuff. It's like, you know, they don't think they're the least racist people, you know, you know, Um, they don't have a racist bone in their body. Very foundationally, why do they even think that? It's because they surround themselves with other white people. Mm. So white people live in white cocoons. Mm -hmm. You know, they work with white people. They live in neighborhoods filled with white people. Their kids' friends are white. Those kids' you know, parents are white, 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 white. They might have one, two, three black or brown people in their lives, call them friends, colleagues. Half the time, you know, it's somebody they randomly work with, which who they refer to as their, you know, their black friend or their brown friend. So if you're in a white cocoon, back to the, it's not the elephant in the room, it's the room. You can't see the room. You know, you can't see the room. If everybody you associate with is white, how can you see your own racism? How can you see your own whiteness? How can you, you can't see the air Mm. that we breathe, Mm. right? It's that foundational. Do you think owning your racism, your racism would help somebody else open up? Like when I think about it, I think about moments when I'm sure I have been racist. We've all been racist at some point in life, right? We've all experienced that. Do you think if you were to have those conversations with them, it'll allow them to feel more comfortable around their own racism and talk about it? Well, it's funny you say that because at every race to dinner, I do talk about my anti-blackness. And I'll give you an example. Like for the longest time, I was taught lock the door if you see a black man walking down the street. Of course. Like, so I would lock the door. Mm. I have stopped doing that 
but it has been a conscious, and I'll tell you what's interesting is I now lock the door when I see a white man walking down the street. <laughs> um, but that's been a conscious shift, right? After 9-11, you know, again, living in New York City, this is how effed up we all are. I would see men who looked like my dad, yeah. okay, walk down the street, and I would, I would be scared yeah. that that person was a terrorist. Mm, mm. My own people. And so um, I talk about that. Guess how that lands on white women? Um, I'm lost. That's just that's just you. That's you. Oh. And at every dinner, at every dinner, when I say I am, you know, I am institutionally anti-black, at least one or two of these women will turn to Regina with shock and point at me and say, your partner is anti-black? Oh, my God. How can you work with her? <laughs> and Regina, it's you can't even make it up. She just laughs and she's like, everybody thinks they're better than us. Yeah. And they're like, well, not me. And she was like, of course you. Of course you. And she said, you don't think that we don't know that Asians think that they're better than us? Right. Like, and so it takes a few minutes, but the, the initial instinct is that, you know, there's something wrong with me, but then they start to soften mm. and the guard comes down a little bit. And then they're, you know, at all these dinners, they're honest. They're 100% honest. And so we know that it can happen. And um, in fact, you know, I've been interviewing some of these white ladies that we've had dinner with. Um, this one woman, Lottie, did a dinner with us two years or like a year and a half ago. Yeah. And she's done a bunch of different programs. And, and she said, um, she's in her 60s. Yeah. And she said, I count our race to dinner event among the most painful experiences of my adult life. Yet no other program I've attended has shown me so clearly how my day-to-day -day behavior supports the culture of white supremacy. Your work opens channels that can't be opened any other way. They need to be blasted open. And um, we've heard that over and over and over again in that, you know, a week later, a month later, a year later, women who, you know, disavowed us were so upset, so furious at Lottie's dinner. In fact, there are quite a few of those women. That was one of the most intense dinners we had. And when I talked to her the other day, she said, do you know what every one of those women who like hated you and Regina after that dinner have all pursued this work in other ways and haven't stopped? Hmm. And so I do think it's the Band-Aid has to be ripped off. And, you know, they, they, they want desperately to sit there and talk about their racist aunts and uncles and, and, you know, the racist Republicans in office. They hate to acknowledge, okay, yes, I was silent last week when my husband was talking about all Muslims being terrorists. Right. I was silent when, you know, my kid's best friend's mom was talking about you know, the sketchy bad school that, you know, wink, wink is filled with black and Latino kids. So um, they're getting it, whether or not they stick with it. We, you can take the horse to the water, but you can't force them to drink. Right. But it's working. How is your book structured? Is it a workbook? Is it? No, no, um, no, no. So it's, okay. it's really, um, it goes through all of the different ways that white women's racism shows up so mm. foundationally there's a cocoon so by way of process this is why it's so hard for you to see it it's because you're so embedded but then we go through white woman behavior so um white women being nice like how, <laughs> how being nice um is so violent and dangerous yeah. white women perfectionism how white women's need to be perfect is so dangerous what is it like to work with 
white women. And I think that might be that one in, in our chapter on how education how schools are white supremacy factories. I think those are my two favorite chapters. Mm. We interviewed, I don't don't know, close to like 15 women of color around the country. We interviewed Asian women, Latina women, black women, indigenous women. We interviewed elected officials, doctors, retail, Mm. you know, retail workers, nonprofit workers. It is the same. It is the same. We interviewed a really prominent um, screenwriter in Hollywood. It doesn't matter if you're Asian, Latina, Black, Indigenous, another woman of color, it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what part of the country mm. you're in. The experience with white women is the same. And I'm going to like, I'm not going to tell you what that is because <laughs> I want people to read the book. But um, the editor, who's a white woman in New York City, originally we sent in the chapter with like five examples. And she said, keep going because she said, this is so impactful. And, and she said, she was like, my God, we really have fucked all of you everywhere yeah. and I was like yes yeah. I mean it's because you've all been trained in the same way I mean you all have got and and that's why the, the the next chapter on schools being factories you know how many white women do you hear saying well I just can't wait till all the racists die off or they'll say something like well you know the kids are going to save us that's not true because of what's taught in school exactly. that's a white supremacy curriculum who teaches these kids white women and how it's being reinforced at home by you all white parents. So until and unless we put an end to all of that, the kids aren't going to save us because the kids are being, you know, trained in the same factories we all have been. Exactly. And this is so true because people just assume that somehow younger generations will salvage everything. How? How? No. I mean, it's it's the same playbook taught by the same people. Like, it, until the playbook changes... And, uh, you know, the demographics of who is teaching changes. changes yeah. No, you, you do. You, you put the same ingredients into uh, the mixing bowl and, and the same, you know, food comes out. Exactly. Is the audience just white women or others do? I mean, it's it's written for white women. Mm. I think that women of color, people of color mm. will see themselves you know, and their experiences in these pages. But my hope, you know, what what we get told quite a bit by people of color is like a lot of the stuff, a lot of our work that we share on social media and stuff is really useful to them because they can just say it's tiring, right? It's tiring to have to explain this stuff all the time. It's also not safe. Hmm. Um, It's not safe in workplaces to explain this stuff because you'll get fired or ghosted or demoted or whatever. So they can actually just share our work and it can be like, you know, we're saying it, not them. And in the end, Syrah, if you were to describe America, and I know I asked you this in March 2020, and I don't remember your answer, but I'm curious to know, I'll probably play your answer from last year as well and see if it has changed. How would you describe America now in this moment? One big violent lie. It's probably the same as I felt last year. <laughs> it is. I mean, it's, 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 it's genocide. It's violence. It's racism. It's rape. Mm. Rinse, repeat. And and erasure, erase, 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 and do it again. Erase, 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 mm-hmm. and do it again. It's by design that white folks think that anti anti Asian violence just started, you know, under Donald Trump. Mm. We've erased the Japanese internment camps. We've erased the Muslim ban. Yeah. You know, we just pretend like none of this stuff happened. 
I think white liberals have found a boogeyman in Donald Trump. And that's what's of happening. Course. You know, I, of course. yes, the guy is evil, but all of this was happening long before he took office. He, and he came from somewhere. He came from like, somewhere, Like, he was yes. elected. He was elected. <laughs> I mean, and, and this, you know, we said this, we had an in-real-life race to dinner um, in January, three days after the terrorist attacks of January 6th. We said this, and they lost their minds. And that's when I was like, you know what? You guys have a lot of work to do. They said, are we women in this room any different from the people at the Capitol that day? And in unison, Regina and I said no. Hmm. They freaked out and... Here, and I say this again, all white people, all white mm. people have more in common with Donald Trump than they can ever imagine. Yep. And they need to sit with that. Mm. When they look in the mirror, they see like the polar opposite of Donald Trump. What they should see is a refl- some version of Donald Trump staring back at them, mm. women and men. Mm. And until and unless they can see that, nothing changes. You know, so and, and what does that breed? It breeds violence. So it's it's lies and it's violence. Mm. That's what America is. Mm. It's always been that. Mm. So there's no hope. No, that's not true. <laughs> so that's, that's what that. So that's the binary thinking of this country. So so then therefore everything is terrible. Of course not. If I didn't believe that if I wasn't hopeful, why would I do this work? Right. You know, right. It's, it's my entire work is around hope. And, um, you know, y- you can't. <laughs> You gotta, you gotta just keep putting one foot in front of the other. Hopefully, not Obama's hope and change. Right, but also that you know, was we've disappointing. Seen it. Uh, totally, but we've <laughs> seen it. I mean, I see it. I see there's change happening with, you know, some small percentage of the white women we work with, mm. and I'll say this even with my own South Asian community, um, there's tiny bits of change. Like, you know, my dad, who three years ago when I said. Um, you know, he's anti-black and South Asians are anti-black. He bristled. Now he's, he and I speak openly about this openly. And he does, he's also 82. And I think maybe he's like, you know what, I could probably be honest now. There's absolutely um, change happening. And yeah, I mean, you can be hopeful and also acknowledge the truth. Toxic positivity, by the way, is another form of whiteness mm. is, you know, like, just look, be, be positive. That's what you're seeing with the Biden hair stuff. Exactly. Like, look, I voted, I voted for them and I, and I donated and I, you know, absolutely hit the ground running for them. And I also knew that a big part of their, you know, the reality of their um, governing would be BS. And it's true. I mean, multiple things can be true. You know, I voted for them, but I wish there was an alternative. I really, really wished. I I felt like I was forced into voting for them because I didn't have an option. Right, because your other option was fascism. Yes, exactly. That's, that's the point about the bar being underground. I mean, when you have such horrible choices, you just take mm. the, you take the best one and, and, but don't put all your eggs in that basket, right? Sarah, this was so good. It's always a pleasure to have you. And hopefully once your book is published, we'll have you again. Awesome. Thank you. What's your website? Where can people find your work? It's race to the number two dinner.com. And um, yeah, you can you can find the race to community program there. I highly recommend white women sign up for that because it's been just so meaningful and it's over a court period of time. So the work kind of, you know, continues and a lot of it you can do in your own time. Mm-hmm. So I hope folks will do that. Thank you so much, Sarah. This was great. 
See, this is what I love about Saira. She is unapologetically and refreshingly honest. Oh, and here's how she defined America in our last episode, which we recorded with her in March 2020. Take a listen. America is no different now than it's ever been. It is founded on lies, violence, genocide, erasure, rinse, repeat. That's America. Until next time, take care.